What I love about Paul is the way that in all his reasoning, in all his arguing, in all his thought process, in all his sort of logical process, he's so Christ-centered, absolutely centered on the Lord Jesus. And here he is in Galatians dealing with a group of people who are, who are leaving really their faith in Jesus and going back to keeping the law. And he describes how in chapter 2, as we just read, how he challenged Peter about his going back to sort of keeping the law or enforcing others to keep it, keeping in with the, the in crowd as it seemed it was in the, in the church and the ecclesia of his day. And I want to suggest that actually... Um, when he says in verse 14 of chapter 2, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew, etc., I want to suggest that from there, in verse 14, to the end of the chapter 2, that those verses from 14 to 21 are all what Paul actually said to Peter at that time. And he says in verse 20 some, some wonderful words that we could really live by for the coming week. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And they're really uh, wonderful words. I am crucified with Christ. Now this is an unusual word there in the Greek. The idea really is of co-crucifixion. The only other times it's used, it's used three times, uh, is about the, the thieves that were crucified next to Jesus. And I wondered if Paul actually consciously had that in mind, that he and us, we are like them. We died with Jesus. When he died, we died. This is the whole idea of the Lord's death being in that sense representative. Now, as we reconstruct in our minds, especially here at the Breaking of Bread meeting, how Jesus died. Every fibre in our being cries out, I would not have done that. I would not have endured. I would have got cranky. I would have sinned. I would have taken the easy way out. And yet, the reality is, we did. We, through baptism, are counted as having died with Christ. And there's a lot of connections, I think, of thought between what we read here in verse 20 and the whole reasoning about baptism that we read in, in Romans chapter 6, that we are to count ourselves, consider ourselves, actually impute ourselves, Romans 6 verse 11, as dead to sin because we died with Christ on the cross. So I don't think in, in that sense uh, there's a command to, so much to be crucified it's rather a command to accept our status in Christ, or to believe, maybe, rather than any idea of command, to simply believe that we are in Christ, and therefore the death that he died, as Paul says in Romans 6, is our death. And what happened at baptism was that we identified with that death and with that resurrection and that that dying with Christ and living again with him is in fact an ongoing process. We are daily, uh, as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the, the life, the resurrection life also of Jesus, might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. So then, Duncan died, Paul died, when Jesus died. Uh, I think it... It, the, the great sort of question that we have all the time is how can I not sin and 
not that I, I think we should be so obsessed with that in a kind of paranoid sense, but all the same, we would like to be different to how we are. We would like to be stronger than how we are at this time. And the answer that Paul seems to be giving in Romans 6 and here in, in verse 20 of Galatians 2 is to accept that actually we have died, that we died to sin, that that's all gone, that's all past us, and that now we are living with Christ. And this means that as we look to the cross, we're not looking to it as Orthodox and, and Catholics look to the crucifix like an icon. And although we may not have icons, as, you know, sort of fully paid up Protestants kind of thing, we can effectively use the cross in the same way. In that we can look there and sort of think, well, that was him there but I am who I am now in my life. And there is this huge difference. But what Paul is saying is we are to look there and to see ourselves there. That we died with him when he died. And we died to the life of sin. That sin, which brings death, had its comeuppance, had its consequence. And that's now over in that sense and done. But he goes on saying that he's uh, been crucified with Christ but I live, well not I, he says, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now, we've said that he's alluding there to Romans 6 when he talks about co-crucifixion with Jesus, but this is also very much the language of Romans 7, where he says that the life he lives in the flesh is a life of spiritual failure. He lives in me, he says. And yet he also says in Romans 7 that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing. And that the life that he lives in the flesh is a life of failure. And he says that he finds in me a principle that propels him towards sin each time he faces temptation. And yet that life in the flesh, that life of failure to live as we should, is lived, he says, by or in the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, we live that life of failure, that life of the limitation of the flesh, in faith, by faith, in faith, of the work of Christ, that he really did die and resurrect for me. And just as Paul concludes Romans 7 by saying, I thank God through or because I'm in Jesus Christ my Lord, although I'm, I, I'm so weak in the flesh. So I think this is sort of, in Galatian terms, this is sort of the equivalent of that here, where he, he sort of triumphs really, that I am crucified with Christ and yet I'm living, but not I that am living, but Christ is living in me. So then he, he, he says that he loved me and gave himself for me. And this is, I suppose, a, a kind of mystery about, about the cross, that somehow it was for me, just as it was for you. There is something absolutely personal, that as he bowed his head and gave up the Spirit, that that was actually, as it were, breathed out toward me, and breathed out toward you. There's something very personal here, and that is why our attempt to... Uh, to, to recollect what happened when we broke bread is, is an entirely personal matter. 
what we are, as Paul says in Corinthians, to examine ourselves. It, it cannot be an issue about others. It is so personal that the Son of God gave himself for me. Now, just going into this giving himself in more detail, uh, it's the same word that you, you got in John 19, verse 30, in the, the record of the crucifixion. Uh, John 19, 30, when we read that he gave up the spirit, he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. Now, it seems to me that he died an unusual death in the sense that when he had the last breath in his lungs, he breathed it out in the form of the words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And that was it. Over. Now, most people, the vast majority of people, do not want to die. And so people die typically against their will. John 10 verse 18, we're told that Jesus gave his life as an act of the will. His life wasn't taken from him, but he consciously gave it. Now, Dallin Thomas' poem about uh, dying men, probably talking about his own father. Dying men, go not gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against the dying of the light. And that is how it is. In the, in the deaths of, of, of many of us, that we go not gentle into that good night, but rage, rage against the dying of the light. We don't want to die. From our first struggling breaths, we are in existence uh, to keep alive. And yet Jesus, it seems to me, died as an act of the will, and that's why I think he died so quickly. And they, were, they were surprised because the process of crucifixion normally took far longer and Pilate you know, didn't really believe Jesus could have died from crucifixion so quickly. Now this implies a hugely intense mental spirit that, that was there in Jesus. And he did that for us. He gave himself, he uh, breathed out his uh, spirit for me. The Son of God loved me. So then, just as an aside, the same word is used about the delivering, the handing over of Christ's wealth to us to trade with. It's Matthew 25, 14, 20 and 22, where we're told that uh, we were each given talents. And it's really unfortunate that parable, the word talents is used. A talent was a weight. And it's easy to think that a talent refers to your ability to do something. And I know that's what it does mean as well. Uh, in modern English, but that, that's not the idea, it's just a weight. Somebody was given five, somebody was given two, somebody was given one. And the person who has one doesn't do anything with it. And the other two, the one who had five and two, they, they did, and they were sort of okay at the day of judgment. So what does this mean? That the person who doesn't have much sort of thing from Jesus um, kind of is tempted to sort of be lazy and then they get condemned for it. Not at all. And why would it be that one person gets more than others? If you understand the giving out of the talent, or the, the, the weights, let's call it, if you understand that giving out as connected with, because it's the same word as, the breathing his last, the giving out of his breath, 
the giving of himself for us, then it all seems to make far more sense. Because it means that the five-talent man would be somebody who really perceived it, who perceived he had five talents, who perceived, wow, he's, the Lord has given me so much. And he, of course, naturally trades with what he's been given. So I think the parable talks about our perception of the degree to which he has given himself out for us. It's a parable, it's a story, you can't push it too, too closely. But that is, I believe, the, the idea. And that, of course, would make sense that the person who's just got one is the person who really doesn't perceive the, the, the greatness of the gift that they've been given, and so they do nothing with it. So that, that, I think, makes far more sense in understanding the talents as sort of natural abilities. Now, 1 John 3.16 has the same idea. <clears throat> but we are to lay down our lives <clears throat> for the brethren as Christ laid his life down for us. So, just imagining him there, the vertical body of Jesus, with that perfect mind within it, giving his last, dying as an act of the will, for us, with that beating in his head, for them, for them. Even when, at the very time he died, it seems that there were virtually none of his followers, or very, very few of them, standing there. We're told in uh, Ephesians 5 verse 2 that we are to live a way of life which is ever following him who gave himself or gave himself out for us. Husbands are to love their wives, Ephesians 5 20, 25, as Christ loved the church and gave himself, breathed his last, gave out of himself for it. That moment is to be etched in our consciousness. And in all the, let's say, the, the business of uh, domestic life, it comes out. That is the inspiration. Paul and Barnabas, Acts 15.26, the AV says that they hazarded their lives for the sake of the Lord Jesus. But that's really a, a poor translation. They gave out their lives. And in the context, it's talking about their spreading of the gospel. They hazarded, they gave out just as, same word, just as Jesus breathed his last, gave out, gave himself for us. <clears throat> if that's what we see in him, and we feel that, that he died for me, then you can't be passive to that. You therefore are going to give out of yourself with this highly conscious act of the will, as the Lord Jesus did for others, be it in preaching, be it in patience with your partner, for the brethren, just in the way of life that is in following him. So then, this is, I think, why there is a connection between the breaking of bread and self-examination, because we cannot see him there, and, as it were, hear that last breath for me, and just shrug and be passive. We inevitably think, well, what is my response? because it demands a response. And really, Paul starts the letter in Galatians 1 verse 4 by talking about that, that Jesus gave himself for our sins so that he might deliver us from this present evil world. Now, why does he say that? Well, the world around those Galatian Jewish converts was the world of the synagogue, was the world of what people thought 
And Paul is saying, look, Jesus died for us so that he might deliver us from this world. We, we can't identify ourselves any longer with that crowd which crucified him. You've got to have the, the neck and the guts of Mary and the, the women who had since walked out from that crowd and stood around the cross in identification with the crucified. So then, why, does Paul, uh, why is Paul saying all this? Why is he using this? It's, I think, in a, a very practical context. The point was that Peter uh, and uh, a lot of the early believers had got caught up in hypocrisy. And they had got worried about what they looked like in the eyes of people and especially in the eyes of their brethren. And this was leading them to, to literally to losing the hope of the kingdom, to losing their connection with Jesus. And that is why Paul is putting Christ crucified right up in front of them. He says in Galatians 1 verse 16 about when he realized that God's purpose was to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him. Now, notice that preaching Christ is revealing God's Son within ourselves. The essential witness is us, is something in us as people, that we as the body of Christ are his face, his hands, his legs in this world. So then once Paul grasped the reality of that fact, that God was actually revealing his Son Jesus in and through him to others, He's saying that it didn't really matter to him what other people felt uh, um, about his sort of qualifications and what they might have thought of him. He didn't need, he says, anyone to sort of uh, commend him. He didn't need a letter from any committee. He didn't need a letter of commendation or anything like that because he had been united with Christ he was in Christ by baptism, just as we are, and that God was therefore revealing his Son through Paul to others. And so he, he says in chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about those who seemed to be something. And, and uh, the idea there in the Greek is uh, who appear to be in, in good standing. That's the idea of the Greek word that's translated something in the AV. Uh, this whole idea of good standing... I mean, this uh, immediately implies good standing in whose eyes? Good standing in our eyes, in the eyes of people. And Paul is saying, look here, it doesn't make any difference what you think or not think of me, because my qualification is from God. Now, the struggle for acceptance, the struggle to be seen by others as legitimate, dominates many lives. And it leads a lot of people, I mean believing people, to very poor behaviour. They'll exclude people because they want to be seen as legitimate and okay in the eyes of others. They're worried that they gossip about them on, on the internet or, or whatever. And all this results in a fearing to step out in faith for Christ because of fear of how others might think of us. Fear of how our standing or acceptance in the eyes of others might be affected. And Paul and Peter went through all that, and in fact I think every uh, true servant of God has been through that in one way or another. 
And he says in verse 6, those who seem to be something, those who are in good standing, added nothing to me. You could read that as him saying that at the time of the, uh, his previous contact with these people, they didn't add any limitations or conditions upon his preaching. Or you could simply read it as him, him saying that they added nothing to me. The fact that at that time I was accepted by them, you know what, that meant nothing. It didn't make me any better, ultimately. It's irrelevant to me. When they accepted me, it was irrelevant. When they didn't accept me, as they, they didn't now, he's saying it doesn't matter. Because I am in Christ and accepted by him. And I am crucified with Christ, although I am living and he is living in me. Then he talks about Peter. Verse 11 Peter was to be blamed, but that is the word normally translated condemned. The RV says because he stood condemned. Now Peter denied the Lord and we tend to think that was Peter's low point, but you know he did it again. He actually denies the Lord again when he's caught away, caught up with their uh, hypocrisy, as the AV talks about dissimulation, it just means hypocrisy, and he, lo- he nearly loses it all again. Incidentally, in, in verse 14, where Paul says, but he, uh, he rebuked Peter before them all. I said to Peter, before them all. Strangely enough, he uses the very same Greek phrase in Matthew 26, but that's in uh, Matthew 26:70, where Peter denies Jesus before them all. Now, this is pretty... Uh, Pretty serious stuff, and Paul says that he, Peter was not walking uprightly according to the truth of the gospel. Now, verse 12, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentile brethren. But look, God had been at great pains to teach Peter that he should eat with Gentile brethren. You remember the whole thing with Cornelius. When we read in uh, verse 6 of Galatians 2 that God accepts no man's person. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care for people. It means that he doesn't look on the outward appearance. God accepts no man or receives no man because of their their person in a human sense. And again, that word occurs twice in the record of Cornelius, that whoever whoever believes receives or accepts remission of sins, Acts 10.43, and therefore they received or accepted the Holy Spirit, Acts 10.47 it's the same word God accepts no man's person it seems that Paul is riding with his eye on the fact that look Peter, you're <clears throat> saying that you're not going to eat with Gentile brethren but God really tried to teach you over Cornelius and you then learned the lesson that you must eat with and fellowship with break bread with, however you want to put it your Gentile brethren he says in verse 13 that the Jews, uh, the Jewish believers, were likewise hypocritical so that Barnabas, as well as Peter, was carried away with their hypocrisy. Once hypocrisy starts within a community, it spreads very, very quickly. Jesus says about the, the yeast of these scribes and Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Once somebody starts posing and posturing, everybody else starts doing the same. Now this idea in verse 13, 
they were carried away with hypocrisy. The only time that phrase is used in the Septuagint is in Exodus 14 verse 6 about Pharaoh gathering his people and charging, carrying them away to destruction in the Red Sea when they went chasing after, after the Israelites. Exodus 14 verse 6 when they, uh, Pharaoh carried the people away, gathered them up and whisked them away chasing after the Israelites to destruction. This was how close Peter was to losing it all. Now Peter was humble. That was his saving grace. And he did repent. And he says in 2 Peter 3.17 He warns his sheep lest you also this is 2 Peter 3.17 lest you also being led away with the error of the lawless fall. Fall from grace. Lest you also that word also implies you as well as someone else. And who's that someone else? It's Peter himself. Because when he says, beware, lest you also, being led away with the error of the lawless, being led away, it's the same word as we've got here in Galatians 2.13. They were carried away by the Jewish, the Jewish brethren's argument. And so... Peter saying that actually you fall from grace by turning to, to legalism and that legalism is in fact a lawlessness actually because it's outside the law of Christ so he's saying don't fall away from God's grace lest you also like I was will be carried away so he's urging them not to go the way that, uh, that, that he did And then he says in First of Peter 2 verse 1 Brethren, lay aside all hypocrisies It's the same word in chapter 2 verse 13 uh, In many Bibles, the hypocrisy uh, Peter and Barnabas and the Jewish brethren were all carried away with dissimulation, the AV says uh, Hypocrisies And so Peter says, brethren Forget about being hypocrites. Lay aside all hypocrisies. This is exactly what Peter himself had failed to do. So as he often does, he's urging people to follow his uh, example of uh, repentance of failure. He's saying, look, I know I've done it myself. It's like when he says the false teachers, they even deny the Lord that bought them. Well, you know, who denied the Lord? It was Peter. And they, you know, he's sort of very conscious allusion to, uh, to that. So then, Peter nearly lost it. Very, very nearly lost it. Because he, he not only went back to, to the law, it seems, as a basis of justification, but he compelled, verse 14, he compelled the Gentile believers to adopt the Jewish ways. And in verse 3, he says uh, the same word is used by Paul when he says that uh, Titus, although he was a Gentile, was not compelled to be circumcised. So, uh, and you've got it again in chapter 6 of Galatians, verse 12, um, where again, the idea of compelling uh, is used about circumcision. So then, I think that Peter was forcing Gentile brethren to be circumcised. Now, he's really losing the plot here. And that the language that we've just looked at is in the strongest possible terms. That he 
very nearly ended up denying the Lord. Well, he did deny the Lord, um, but he repented. He took Peter, uh, Paul's, Paul's rebuke. And all this leads up to what we started with, the, the, this tremendous verse in verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. I am co-crucified with him. And so, we have to ask ourselves, I know that it doesn't maybe affect everybody, but I think in essence it probably does, that legalism is attractive, and we can get easily carried away with the idea of separating from other brethren, from demanding things of others, and just get caught up in a group mentality. That's what happened here. Peter got caught up in a group mentality, but that mentality was wrong. And it was seriously wrong. And it was a denial of the cross of Christ. And it involves all this posturing and worrying what others think and what they could think uh, and the impression we might have and whether we're going to get you know, a letter from the committee or whether we're going to, 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 to have qualification in the eyes of men. And this is the whole context in which Paul is saying, look, I'm crucified with Christ. Christ is living in me. I don't care, you accept me, you don't accept me, I am not going to pose and posture in anyone's eyes. I mean, he's saying it very nicely. I'm not going to worry, in that sense, what you think, what in your eyes I look like, because even if you think I'm great, you add nothing to me. And even if you tell me that I am not qualified to preach, I am not qualified to, to do anything, he says, well... I am because I'm in Christ. So again, it doesn't make any difference to me what you think. Now, we may say, oh, yeah, well, I'm, I'm in a different situation. But you know, you're not. You're not. Because we all worry terribly what other people think. If, uh, let's say, you were at a, a gathering or at a group of people and a photo was taken of you, and then maybe, well, the next day or the next month or the next year, as someone produces that photo, and you look at it, whose face do you look at first? You look at your own. You know? When you look in a mirror, what do you look at? Your chest? Your, uh, your, your, your waist? You look at your face. And you think how others might look at you. This is it. We all worry what we look like in photos. And it's, uh, it's no good uh, trying to say we don't. I mean, we, we do. And that's how it is. <clears throat> and so, all that is a nonsense. Uh, and any kind of postulating or worry what others are thinking. See, this is the way to freedom. You know, people, uh, Paul talks about freedom in Christ. And what does that mean? Well, freedom in Christ, I think, means feeling and knowing our acceptance by him <clears throat> knowing that the son of God loved me and gave himself, breathed out his last breath for me in my direction his spirit therefore has got to become my spirit and whatever others think and whatever their perception of me or my, may or may not be so what? we are fools for Christ's sake whether it's in the eyes of the world or as it was here in the eyes of the brotherhood, it makes no difference. Our relationship with him means that we are in him 
and therefore all that is true of him becomes true of us his life bursts forth in our mortal flesh uh, and so we, we have acceptance finally we have it right now in this life we don't need to somehow get our credibility our meaning from others from their eyes from their opinion from their emails or their comments on I don't know some social networking uh, some social network online Facebook or whatever it might be but from him he is the one who has given us security emotional, psychological, spiritual we have our security in him because it's only his opinion that matters and as I say the fact that we are to see ourselves as Paul did personally dead with Christ and in another sense standing there in front of him as he died, as he breathed his last with his head nodding as that as it fell down onto his, uh, as his chin fell onto his chest, in our direction. We can't be passive to that. Thank you.